0: Guest, he's had me laughing before we even started recording here. Welcome to JCB Art Studio. This is season five. And before I forget, I have to give a shout out to Eric D'Souza. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, for coordinating this interview. Uh, I'm really glad you did. So I have Jonathan Whitelaw with me. Jonathan is an author, an award winning journalist, and broadcaster. He's worked the front line of Scottish politics. That sounds very interesting. (laughs) Before he moved into journalism, the subjects he's covered have varied from breaking news, the arts, culture, sports, radioactive waste, which also I thought, oh, no, no, just to the novel Joe, (laughs) (laughs) music and fashion. He's a reviewer for the BBC and STV. We're going to talk about his third novel, The Bengal Hall Detectives, and Jonathan and his family's recent move from Scotland to Edmonton, Alberta. Jonathan, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm always um I'm always really nervous when when people read out my my introduction, uh, mostly because I get I get all panicky thinking, oh my God, that's all the things that I've done and and you know it's gonna catch up with me one of these days. But <sighs> There you go. It hasn't caught with me yet. I'm I'm one step ahead of fate. There you go. But thank you very much. That was a very kind introduction. Probably amongst the kindest that it's ever been read. But Aww. you don't want to hear about you don't want to hear about bad introductions. That's a that's a whole other podcast. Well,
0: we could always go into radioactive
1: waste. Right? We, we could we could. I, I've been described as worse. I've been my work's been described as worse. But again, that probably probably more than deserved. But that's a again that's another for another time.
0: Okay. Well. First, this book, the Bengal Hall Detectives. I've got a. I've got questions. I want to make sure I don't stray off too far. Certainly,
1: it's all right. Oh my god! Stray away.
0: This book, the Bengal Hall Detectives. I was reading it last night, and it is fast paced, and I'm laughing out loud. And my spouse, who's at the other end of the sofa, is like, "What's funny?" And I said, "It's this book." It's a joke, you know. And I, I thought, I've, so first, let's. I, I'm sure you're tired of this question, but Scotland to Edmonton, Alberta. Why?
1: Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not tired of it. Um, far from it. And again, thank you for the lovely words about the about the Bing hole detectives. It's it's lovely to hear. It's um. It's what I'd hoped. Obviously, before before the book came out, um, you know, it's a cozy mystery. It's uh, set in the Lake District of the UK, which is a beautiful part of the, the UK, beautiful part of the world, in fact. And it's in and around you know the Lake District and the forests and rolling valleys and lots and lots of countryside and lovely little quaint villages and towns and bigger towns and cities as well. Obviously, um, and it was a part of the world that I spent quite a quite a bit. Uh, when I was younger and then obviously into adulthood would go down there with my now wife yeah. um, in terms of our move across very very similar landscapes actually uh, here in, in Aldersa uh, particularly you know in, in and around the, the, the sort of Edmonton area or indeed driving between Calgary and, and, uh, and Edmonton the short answer is that we're here for my wife's work she's a she's a doctor Awesome. And she got the wonderful opportunity to come over to Canada to to work. And we upsticked and moved wagons west last May. So we've been here, we've been here well, I suppose it's not quite a year yet, but it's not far off it, not kicking the shirt off it, as they say. Yeah. And we've been made to feel very, very welcome, very, very welcome here. Um, very much found a home here in in, in Canada. Neither of us had any connection to the to the province before we came over. We didn't have any connection to the country before we came over. So it was very much when we stepped off the plane in Calgary on May the twentieth with our son, who's now two. Yeah. Uh, until that was that was it. It was a brand new adventure, brand new. But then you know we're not the first people to do this. We're yeah. not the last people to do it. One one of the things that I keep saying to, to to my wife is, um, the skies here in Canada and Alberta and Edmonton. And around the area are absolutely incredible. I mean, we turned off the TV about six, seven weeks after we first arrived. We ter- we literally turned off the TV. We we're staying in an apartment eighteen floors up in downtown yeah. Edmonton, and we had these lovely big panoramic windows that looked out across the 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 western view of the city. Yeah. Uh, and we turned off the TV to just sit and watch the skies rolling in because there oh. was a, there was like a, a massive electric storm had, had blown in from the from the west, and the clouds are cascading towards us like like the ocean. You know, oh, like wow. being on the, the beach, and the pair of us were absolutely dumbfounded. We sat and watched this for about forty minutes in silence, in the dark. Um, you know, never seen anything like that. I, I'm talking about the Lake District. Obviously, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of the UK, and the UK has got fantastic scenery as well. Scotland, in particular, uh, but nothing, nothing like what we've seen here. And and it's it's been really, really nice. It's it's been it's been great, fantastic.
0: Well, that's good to hear. I know that's really good to hear because I, I know for, so I'm on Vancouver Island yep. and uh, what I love is if I wake up early enough and <laughs> you know, head will see me like, run down the hall because yeah. that's the where the front of the house faces. Yeah. And it's when it was weird. Okay. So they're like the one more day morning, I woke up and I looked to the right and it's dark because that's where all the big evergreen trees are. Right. Yeah. And then I looked to the left and I can see pink and purple and orange. Yeah. And that's when I went down the hall. I yeah. think I'm nuts. Right. But I'm looking out the front window and it's just because like you said, the sky was pink, purple, Absolutely. and orange, you know? and I, you're like, Yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, it's, you know, the, the- Pace of life these days for everyone
0: yeah.
1: is breakneck. And I've certainly never had in the, whatever it is, nine months, 10 months that we've been here or so, uh, I've never had moments where I've been, my breath has been taken away by the scenery. Yeah. And maybe, you know, again, I grew up I grew up in Glasgow, in the south side of Glasgow. Uh, I, I was educated there. I studied there at university. Barring three years, three, four years that we stayed in Edinburgh, which is only a 45-minute train journey, yeah. east from from glasgow you know i'd spent my whole uh, adult and child juvenile life in in and around the city and don't get me wrong it's 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 a lovely big city it's a very very cosmopolitan city but it's very very different uh, and the uk as a whole is very very different to here in canada and as i said m- neither myself nor my wife or indeed my son who's at daycare could complain about the welcome that we've been given and 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 just a very very different pace of life for for us as a family um for me professionally as well you know i uh, you you went through my rap sheet there as a journalist it's i've been lucky enough been fortunate enough since i came over here to spend a lot more time majority of my time now focusing on my writing on my professional writing and I think it's benefited from it. I know that I've certainly benefited from it psychologically from from um from being over here in Canada and and being able to concentrate on my on my writing as such. Um don't get me wrong, you can take the boy out of journalism but you can't take the journalism out of the boy. I did a story last week in fact and submitted a freelance story about um a, 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 about an upcoming uh, fiddler's jamboree. Um, you know what, what th- that's the thing about being a journalist, right? It, you, you never pass up a good story and you never you, you, you can never really switch it off. Okay.
0: The big,
1: the big difference for me now is that I'm not you know strapped to the desk yeah. Eight, 10 hours a week, eight, ten hours a day, eight days a week, as it were. So okay. it's, um, it's, it's good, it's great. I, a fantastic, fantastic style of life that we've got here. And, and as I said, the welcome that we've had from from uh, the people of Alberta, Canada in general, has been very, very uh, humbling, uh, and we are all very appreciative of it. And and yeah, we, we've very much made made ourselves Excellent. at
0: home. Excellent, that's good. To hear. And yourself
1: included, yourself included, Joanna and, and Eric, as we mentioned as well, and the crime writers of Canada. I, I cannot fault them one bit. I, I've been very much, very much welcomed into the fold and. And and described as a Canadian writer, I I, I don't know. I, I people that follow me on social media, uh, they would have seen last week or the week before. Sorry that um, I I signed my first copies of the Bingo Hall Detectives because it, it came out here yeah. on December twenty seventh. It was out and it was out in April last April in yeah. the UK, but it came it came out here in Canada uh, on the twenty seventh of December. Uh, so our local bookstore has it in, and I was delighted. I mean, that was the thing. You you know that way, writers we go in. Yeah. I know writers that pretend that they don't go into bookshops to look at their own books but we all do it that's 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 the that's the rub that's that's what we do right um and uh, and I was delighted when I saw it so I, I introduced myself to the staff and and i got I got three stickers it was its a, it's a coals and I got three stickers on the front of it I got signed signed by the author, local author. And I got a little, uh, I got a little uh, maple leaf sticker on it as well because I'm a Canadian author now. So I was, I was genuinely delighted, and I put it on, put it on social media, and people loved it as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been great. It's been a whirlwind, yeah, a mad year, um, but it's been, it's been fantastic. I cannot complain. Very, very lucky.
0: And I didn't even think about that. I, you you move to a new country and then all of a sudden you know they're saying you're a Canadian writer right That's like, it.
1: Yeah, That's it. Never, yeah it never
0: even occurred to me
1: you're That's not like getting it. rid of me now there okay you go. good, good. you can't get rid of me now I'm like a tick
0: <laughs> well because your novel like I said in the intro it is funny it's fast paced and just. I'm going to ask, I will be asking you the standard question of what it's about, but just to give our listeners a bit of a hint about this novel. So I have to share something which ties into this novel that happened with my husband. So he was channel channel surfing, and he stopped on this game show called Family Feud. And the game show question was, name a place which, as soon as you arrive, you realize you can't easily escape. <laughs> and the first words out of my husband's mouth was, in-laws. <laughs> 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 and I chuckled when I heard that. And then as I'm re- typing these questions, I'm, I'm, I i couldn't remember the game show. Okay. And I heads up, I may actually call you Jason, your character, because sometimes games <laughs> have just been messing around. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I've
1: and been so- called worse. Don't worry. Don't worry. I've been called a lot worse.
0: <laughs> so there What was the name of the game show? And he tells me. And then he's saying, why? And so I'm telling him about your book and and what it's about and the relationships, you know, a son-in-law and a mother-in-law detectives, yeah. right? And he goes, oh, you know, and he goes, well, your mom and I, we got along for the most part, you know, and he goes, but it sure would have been nice if she would have stopped calling me Roy. And Roy is my sister Susan's husband, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, There you go. There you go. Speaks volumes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So Jonathan, I'm asking you the same question. Name a place which as soon as you arrive, you realize you can't easily escape.
1: Oh, blimey. I think my answer for this is going to be the newsroom okay Uh, i i think uh and and good and bad you know i I sort of alluded to it there that i used to work yeah eight ten hours a day eight days a week uh sometimes longer i mean i i i won't bore you with all the war stories of about me me when i was a junior journalist, you know a cub reporter
0: um
1: but there were times where i would do upwards of like 20 shifts in a row you know, back to back, and and the, the, the thing about it is, it's it makes it sound very very brutal, and it is to a certain degree. But I wouldn't have been there if I didn't want to be there, quite frankly. And that that's that's the nature of it. Um, the newsroom for any listeners who've who've who have ever been in a newsroom, or indeed haven't been in a newsroom, is a very very unique environment. It's plugged into the the, the social consciousness. You know, everything that goes on. Passes through that newsroom in one way, shape, or form, but also it's completely detached from reality oh. because you have you have a massive mixing pot of opinions, of experience, of a style, writing style, of um, ability as well, good and bad, and uh, it all comes together in a newsroom probably more so than 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 maybe any other profession's m- major sort of congregation point. You know, you think about something like an emergency room yeah. where you've got doctors and nurses, they're all pulling towards that one goal. Whereas something like a newsroom, you've got different departments that have got completely different agendas. Okay. You've got a news department, you've got a sports department, you've got features, you've got arts, you've got the crossword. You know, yeah. all this stuff is is all happening and you've got people that are doing it and they're all, yes, they are pulling towards the one the one direction. There is no atmosphere like a newsroom. I've never experienced an atmosphere like I've never experienced an atmosphere quite like a newsroom anywhere else, other than being in the newsroom. And, um, like I said, it's some of my fondest memories that I have are in a newsroom, but some of my worst memories I have are in a newsroom as well, and, and that's the. That's the energy that it that it produces. One of the big things that I really, really missed because I worked through the entire pandemic. Uh and because my because I was predominantly a digital journalist, we were on the digital desk. Yeah. So we got farmed out about a week, two weeks before the, the the lockdown in the UK. So I think that was the end of March. So we were working from home from about the beginning of March. Yeah. So about two, three weeks extra because because we could. Yeah. All, all, all our online, all, all our resources and 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 ways of producing the website and and editing the website were all online based anyway. So there was no real need for us to be in the newsroom, and that was one of the things I really, really missed. Uh, and I and everyone I know, every every journalist, not just where you know, I used to work, but every journalist that I know, always said that. The energy that a newsroom brings when you walk in that at any time of the day it can be seven o'clock in the morning it can be two o'clock in the morning it can be three o'clock in the afternoon it doesn't matter it's 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 all ongoing it's twenty four hours a day seven days a week we never close mm, wow. um, and it's it's a very very special atmosphere and it's 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 somewhere that that I do miss I I, I do miss that that atmosphere um, but yeah you 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 would have at times you would have had to drag me out. Uh, kicking his like, frequently was dragged out kicking and screaming and then there was other times where they couldn't throw me out quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's cool.
0: okay. okay. So I'll get rid of the standard question and that is what is can you give us a little bit of an idea of what the bingo Hall detectives is about?
1: Certainly. I, this this is this is the, you know I know that it's a I know that it's a standard question Joanna but it's yeah. it's always interesting I always find it really interesting because I do a lot because I do a lot of panels and, and podcasts and and I also moderate panels and things at, at festivals and and conferences I I always find it fascinating when I ask that invariable question what what's the book about um and. A lot of people hate it. A lot of writers hate it, uh, uh, but a lot of writers really love it as well. It's it's a it's it's a strange, it's a necessary evil. Um, I probably should answer your question. Actually, that that might that might help. I'm trying I'm stalling here, trying not to answer the necessary evil. Uh, the bigger hole detective. Certainly, it's a cozy mystery yeah. um, that features a mother-in-law and son-in-law detective duo who are hunting the killer of a a local pensioner, local old age pensioner member of the Bingo Club who the police believe eh, died in tragic a tragic accidental circumstances. However our mother-in-law figure, Amita uh, believes that there may be something a little bit more suspicious at foot and she brings in tow her out-of-work journalist son-in-law Jason to get to the bottom of the mystery.
0: Yeah. Does
1: that work? Does that work for you?
0: Yeah, it's great. It's great. So I tell you, like even, like I say, the funny scenes. I had one scene I wanted to read, and then I, I thought, no, nah, i got to get rid of this other scene. You know, like poor Madeline, she falls off a ladder, and, you know, the bingo club is discussing it in the beginning. And poor Ethel, okay, <laughs> poor Ethel. <laughs> Look at it. Like, talk about beats in the dialogue, and when Ethel comes in. Okay, and it it made me think that no matter where you are in life young, middle age, older you know going to the bingo club and a small group there's like a hierarchy and with yeah. these people so how did that I was just wondering how did that scene come about because there is definitely a hierarchy in the bingo club
1: absolutely uh, I I used to go to bingo when I was younger I grew up going to bingo. Um, my uh, late grandmother would always uh, would always take my brother and I. My my brother's eight years younger, so we always used to go if it was the summer holidays, school holidays, or something. Yeah. We would spend the night down at my my grands, and my grand was addicted to bingo uh, to, to the to the point of like proper, as in she wouldn't miss a game anywhere if there was a game going, uh, and that caused some consternation uh, in, within the family. Um, it is a massive thing it's a massive thing in 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 the uk bingo it's massive thing all over the world now and it's 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 enjoying actually somewhat of a renaissance Mm. uh particularly with online online communities but this is this is a way back in the 90s when it still used to be sort of video link up and things for big big jackpots uk wide anyway uh we used to stay we used to stay at my grand's apartment and within the, the apartment complex there was a a uh, sort of communal hall and they used to run a bingo every Thursday night or Friday night I think it was and my gran used to take my brother and I and we would sit at the table and draw so I I, I used to take a pen and pad and, you know it felt like you were in there for six days but it was actually probably about an hour hour and a half <laughs> Uh, so I was picking up all the all the dialogue and all the you know everything that's going on, and we did that. I mean, you know, I was doing that until I was till I was a teenager, essentially. So from from a very young age, so I was exposed to all these lovely old dears and not so lovely old dears. Yeah. Um, the thing was, it was the nineties, right? So it was before the it was before the smoking ban was was enforced in the UK. So you used to go into this room, and it, there was no windows in it. <laughs> it didn't have any windows. It was like a it was almost like an air raid shelter. Yeah. Um, and you used to open up the door, and this wall of smoke used to f- hit you in the face. And my mother, bless her, always used to say that when she when she got us home, she would invariably take our you know uh, our clothes from the previous night out, and she said that she could smell the she could smell every member of the bingo club mm-hmm. on our clothes because of the smoke and the tobacco and and everything else. Now they were always lovely. the 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 the, the club were always really really lovely to us. Mm-hmm. And it was all. I think it was always seen as a bit of a novelty to have the kids in there. Um, My gran, unfortunately, she always took it very, very seriously, and it was there was a slight resentment that we were there, that we were maybe knocking her off her game. But that's a that by the by. But yeah, there was a hierarchy there. You know, there was a there was a hierarchy in place, and and I guess it's like any you know, it's like any other community group. There's always going to be that um, social. elegance there's always going to be that social hierarchy where people naturally want to take over people naturally want to be bossed around people Mm -hmm. some you know you might just come out of the the house for an evening out of the house particularly Mm -hmm. for elderly members of the community it's 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 a godsend really um but yeah i mean i'm glad i'm glad that comes across in the work because it was certainly something that i was i was i was acutely aware of when i was coming up with the characters Yeah. um Amata sort of positions herself almost as a bit of a neutral uh, neutral to maybe, maybe a, a, a nicer a commander in chief compared to say Georgie Little John, who's the self anointed head of the Bingo Club, and everything yeah. has to pass through her. Um, and Ethel, as you mentioned there, she bless her, she's the oldest member, and she's uh, a bit doolally as they as they say back in the UK. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a strange it's a strange sensation, Joanna, because I think. I, unlike anything else that I've written, Jason and Amata came to me completely fully formed. Really? Yeah. I mean, w- w- I was very, t- to the point where I sweated over the first chapter. Uh, th- again, probably more so than I've ever done for any other work because I knew what these characters were right away mm-hmm. from top to bottom, beam to cup. I knew exactly who they were. And and I'm, I'm grateful for it because one of the hardest things as a writer, right, is that... Mm-hmm. You try and make these characters, you try to flesh these characters out as much as possible. And sometimes it takes quite a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears to get to that stage. I was so, so lucky that those two characters came to me fully formed. And it actually meant, in hindsight, looking back on the process now, it meant that I had a lot more time and a lot more room and space to develop all the other characters that are in it, whether it's Madeline, whether it's Ethel, whether it's Georgie or Sandy or Father Ford or anyone really. Yeah. Um. And I'm grateful for it because it means that the I, from my perspective anyway, I was able to put across who these characters were and and just really flesh them out because you know what it's like yourself as a reader. All, all writers are readers. Yeah. You don't. You, you hate to read something that you get to the end of it and think, oh, Do you know what? I wish we'd had a little bit more flesh on the bones of that particular character. And I'm very aware of that as a writer. It's mm-hmm. it's something that, that that drives me forward. It's something that puts me that I hold myself accountable as, as as a writer is to make sure that I never get to the end of a book and feel that that's, that that's happened. So if I feel it, then hopefully there's a good chance that a reader does too.
0: And that's the thing. I know I was walking. I always walk the dogs in the morning and it's a great time to think about what I'm working on. And I was thinking that exact thing yesterday morning i thought okay this scene you can like you said you said flesh it out i was thinking okay you can take it even down another level or you could yeah, add yeah. another level to it you're absolutely. not letting it out there yet
1: absolutely yeah. it's, it's it's one thing it's I, I do um i do some creative writing workshops for the alex writers in calgary okay. and um in fact the, the 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 next one starts this week uh at the time of recording it starts this week um and one thing that I always tell the students and tell the tell the class members is um don't ever don't ever sell your character short. And don't sell yourself short as a writer, but don't sell the character short. Because if you don't flesh out those bones, if you don't give them that exactly as you say, di- di- dig down that level deeper. Um you are, you're selling yourself short as a writer because you're more than capable of doing it. You know, every writer's more than capable of doing it. It, it, Sometimes it takes that push. Sometimes it takes that outside influence. Sometimes it takes that consciousness to to think, yeah, I, I need to do this here in this particular character. Um, one exercise that I always get them to do, and you will you you've probably heard this yourself. It's, it's not a it's not a um, it's not a Jonathan Whitelaw original, unfortunately. I wish it was. <laughs> I always get them as an exercise to uh, to sit down and write and think about what that particular character did on their eighth birthday, oh. because I feel that the eighth birthday, you know, your eighth birthday is a very very pivotal point. It's a very very strange time in in in, in someone's life. You're not a toddler anymore you know you're not still learning the 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 ways good and bad and things like that you're you're coming into your own but you're not quite old enough to be a pubescent teenager yeah. and you know being interested in girls and boys and fast cars and going out to nightclubs and things like that, that you get when you start becoming 13, 14, 15 and, and, and well for me older but uh, you know when I was 8 years old I was still I very happily still playing with my Lego and Star Wars figures and there's there's still that magic in the air of life you know yeah. um So it it can be a very very pivotal point in in someone's life, and, and that's why I always get. and I, and I say it, do it for every character. Don't yeah. just do it for your your protagonists or your antagonists, and don't even do it for just the secondary characters. Do it for the tertiary ones. Do it for someone who's maybe only got one scene.
0: Okay.
1: Do yeah. it for the postman, you know. Do it for the do it for the milkman. Do it for the 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 the, uh, the, the clerk at the at the uh, in the store. Um. Because it, it you might not use it. And this is another thing that I always I always say to the class is that you might not use the information that you come up with. But you spend 10, 15 minutes fleshing out a character. Yeah. And if it's in your head, then you subconsciously will start adding that into the into the character. And if you need to add that stuff in, if you need to add that backstory in, then it's there for you.
0: Yeah.
1: But if you don't, then it's a really, really good exercise in, in in character development. So it's it's I'm a big, big fan of that exercise. I think it's I think it's really, really good, and I do it all the time. I mean, I I do I'll do it for nearly every if not every every new character that I come up with in, yeah. in my books. Because if for nothing else, it just focuses my mind. It focuses where where I want to go with that particular character, and having it to drop on should they, you know, do yeah. something terrible or have something terrible done to them, as is the as is the folly of being a mystery writer. That invariably. Is what happens.
0: Yeah. Okay. I like that. I'm going to remember that one. That's cool. Like I said, your book is fast paced. Like you're just you're whipping through it. And and it's and you it's not that you want to whip through, but it's just you, it's that it's engaging. And then you realize, geez, I'm I'm already on chapter, you know, 12 or 13 or whatever. And it was interesting because I'm I'm a student at Simon Fraser University's writing studio, and we had a lecture about dialogue, you know, and how dialogue moves a scene. It makes a scene fast-paced. And I was wondering what your views were on that. And do you feel your years as a reporter has contributed to that fast pace?
1: Certainly, yeah. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Dialogue's one of my favourite parts of being a writer.
0: Okay,
1: uh, it's um, to to have to have to be in a position where you've got characters where the where the dialogue rattles off like a machine gun back and forth. That that to me is the pinnacle of 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 that's where I want to be as a writer. You know, if I find myself in a position where I can do that with characters, then I know that I've done something right or I'm doing something right. Um, there's a fantasy writer uh, called Joe Abercrombie. Uh, who I would highly recommend his work. Really, 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 really good. Um, he, he's he's a sort of a realistic fantasy writer. Uh, and the way I always describe his work is that if someone gets punched in the face in the first chapter of of one of his books and breaks their hand, their hand is still broken 10 chapters in and that affects how they get on. Whereas, you know, you read a lot of sword and sorcery stuff and that just doesn't factor into it because there's a whole, whole load of other stuff. It's not to say that, it's not to say that, uh, it has a detrimental effect on the actual fantasy element of it because it's it's some of the best fantasy that's been written over the last twenty years now actually nearly twenty years. I'm very lucky enough to have hosted him a couple of times at uh, his his book launches uh, and interviewed him a couple of times and, and I remember I, I always I always tell this story but his I think his first law trilogy came out in the early 2000s. I think two thousand and four was the first one and I read I you know I devoured them I couldn't wait for them to come out. Um, and I interviewed him for his last book that came out mm, last year, maybe the year before twenty twenty one, possibly twenty twenty two. I can't, I can't remember. All, all time has has yeah. lost all meaning after post pandemic. Yeah. And uh, I happened to mention to him, I said, "Look, I read these books when they first came out, and I was still at school. I was, you know, I was, I, I was a senior in high an school. Uh, and I've actually known you, Joe, as a writer longer than I've known my wife." And he said, very, very generously, he said she'll never she'll never know what we've got jonathan she'll never know what we've got so he's a, he's a lovely bloke anyway uh, what what he always says is uh, for him dialogue when you get to that position where it doesn't feel like you're the one writing both sides of the conversation but it actually feels like you are just eavesdropping in on two people having a conversation he says that's when he gets a, that's when he knows that he's done it right and i i completely buy into that school of thought and from a narrative point of view you're absolutely right it moves things forward because Let's be honest, again, as readers, we want to hear our characters' voices, don't we? We, we? we want to believe that these characters are really saying these things. And I would much rather sit and watch a snappy back and forth or an argument about something than read screeds and screeds of text that are describing how the story's moving forward. It's, it, it's, it's just human nature. In terms of journalism, I, I com- I, I'm more than convinced that that is the case. You know, I I spent I spent my career as a journalist trying to make my work as interesting as readable as possible. A lot of that came down to the fact that I worked for a tabloid newspaper. So quite frankly, the, the nature of the style of, the, of that type of reporting needs to be a lot snappier. It needs to be straight to the point. You need to be getting into what the story is in the first two, three paragraphs, then a quote, and then everything else is inconsequential. And one of the biggest challenges that I always had, I always faced as a journalist, is when I came across very, very complicated, whether it's a complicated court story or a financial story, uh, and trying to trying to whittle down, whittle through the jargon, trying to get straight to the jugular, tell that story in a style that matched the house style that kept my editors happy, yeah. um, but also was in a way that was still informative and still told the same story. Unlike if you read a broadsheet, which would just be paragraph after paragraph a thousand words blast right there in front of you. Um, and it's also, it's also had an effect on me as a reader. I, I I think I'm more inclined to read, read something that's got a lot more dialogue in it than it would be for, again, screeds and screeds and screeds of text that are maybe saying exactly the same thing, but I don't know. I think dialogue, you can put across a little bit more character. Yeah. I think, that, you know, you can get the sense of who this character is in the way that they speak that you just don't get. You just really don't get in terms of, of, of a piece of prose that describes how they speak, you know, or describes how they are, is it, it 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 just brings a little bit more realism, I think, to the to the work.
0: And on that note, we're gonna. I have to read this this scene with the dialogue. Okay,
1: just. I'm a bit nervous. I'll be honest, Joanna. I'm I'm a bit nervous about this. I I get I get really I get really nervous when I hear my work my well, work. So I, be gentle. Be gentle. I, please.
0: I just want to make sure I read it out loud. And give it justice right just you know what i mean just i I don't want
1: i'm sure you will okay so what
0: has happened is jason is with his mother-in-law amita and they've just finished questioning madeline who is who's the one who's who's died who's their i'll say murder victim they've just finished questioning her housekeeper okay and they're they're in their car and poor Anita is driving because Jason had a little too much, too many pints the night before. Okay. So
1: we've all been there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what has happened is their poor little car has it sounds like it's been sideswiped by this this lorry, this big trunk. Okay. And this big massive man the driver has gotten out of the truck and he's now coming to walk you know marching towards them and he has said some not nice things to amita okay so then jason is trying to defend her and and so it starts hey jason shouted you can't speak to her like that you were the one speeding down a country road she should have seen me coming the truck is 44 tons for god's sakes and you were driving like a, it, driving it like a maniac. I'll show you a maniac, mate. Oh, yeah? 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 Yeah, I will. Well, go on then. I will. You don't want me to, mate. Believe me. Oh, I'm sure I do. I will then. Go ahead. All right, then. I will. Amita's neck started to hurt, looking back and forth from Jason to the lorry driver. She was about to call time on this battle of wills when the worker slammed his hands on the roof of their car. He stormed off around the back of the car and headed for the passenger door. Oh, God, said Jason, I didn't think he would actually rise to it. Quick, lock the door, Mia. She shot a finger to the lock button next to the radio. In her haste, she slipped and turned the radio on. The door opened and, as Abba's Waterloo <laughs> blaring out of the speakers. A big, thick, ham-like hand grabbed Jason by the shoulder and pulled him sideways. If the music hadn't been so loud, Amita was certain she would have heard her son-in-law whimper. His eyes were as big as saucers as he was bundled out of the car by the surly workman. Bloody hell, she said, quickly getting out herself the music still booming from the speakers. Amita might have found it funny if she wasn't scared to death by what the workman was going to do with Jason. She hurried around the back of the car. The driver had Jason by the scruff of his jumper. He tossed him like a rag doll until Jason tumbled over the remains of a stone wall that lined the country road. I love that scene. I love Bravo.
1: Expertly read. Expertly read, a lot better than it would have been if I'd read it. Believe me.
0: When it's it's interesting because the dialogue is great, but then when you you everyone knows Abba's Waterloo, and then when you stick that in there, it, it's like oh god, it was. It, I think it's awesome.
1: Very kind of you. Very very kind of you, Joanna. I mean that that that's the. you know? Do you know? I I I've always loved I've always loved as a reader a farce.
0: Yeah.
1: And and it's a very, very tricky, it's a very tricky thing to do and, and to do well because you always tread that that knife edge between it working and it being pie in the face comedy, you know, yeah. slapstick. And uh I've got a very good editor. I've got a very, very good editor at, at Harper North. And I the, the these little moments for me, this that, that, that's why I write cozy crime is because cozy mystery is because I think it's not to say that you can't have them in things like police procedurals or psychological thrillers or just thrillers in general it's not to say that you can't have these moments far from it of course you can uh i just think that in cozy crime you you're afforded a little bit more wiggle room to have more of them
0: okay.
1: um and the challenge for me is always that balancing act between how how far is, is how far is too ridiculous and and how much is just enough to 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 bring to to move the story forward, but also to to try and give an insight into just how uh, whimsy and 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 silly and and I mean these things happen in real life, right? It's you know you, you watch a you watch a Tom Cruise film and he always gets the right button at the at the right time, uh, but that doesn't happen in real life and and people slip and people panic and people get themselves into a bluster over nothing usually, yeah. uh, and to try and bring a little bit of that to the to the characters um th- those those little moments they're my favorite moments in the book uh, and they're my favorite moments in the whole series and and i'm so so grateful as we mentioned before that the characters jason hamilton in particular came to me so so readily yeah. uh that i could put them into that scenario and not feel like not have to change anything really on, on on their part because it just worked you know you can not not every character can be put in a scenario like that and it and it's believable yeah. and hopefully Hopefully, with with the Bingo Hall detectives and our, and our dynamic duo detectives, uh, it, it it does come across. Even though it's ridiculous, um, you can you can see that they that they that only they would put themselves in a, or find themselves in a scenario like that. And 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 I find that really comforting as well. It's brought me, it's made me smile actually. Yeah, a wonderful reading, and uh, and it reminded me of a of of a, a very special moment in the book. So thank you very much.
0: Well. And what I found is, like in the beginning, they're not really getting along that great, yeah. you know. And then there's there's a scene where you could you start to see where you know he's like I think it starts first with the funeral scene. He starts to feel a little a little sorry or empathy for Amita. And then the other thing I thought was cool is when. Jason decides, like when they go to question the housekeeper, it's like you write how he's pacing as he's starting to ask questions. And it's almost like you want to say, "Okay, the boy's back, like he's he's gotten into his groove again. Right. So the scene with Laura McCann in the pub, she's, you know, well-respected, successful reporter. And Jason is comparing careers, hers to his And after reading your bio, I was wondering if their careers or this is a very personal question. That's okay.
1: I'm a a tabloid journalist. It comes with the territory, believe me.
0: I was wondering with their two careers, their two careers, actually your full career.
1: I no is the is the short answer, because both Laura McCann and Jason Brazel are a lot more successful journalists than I ever was. So that's that's the easy, easiest part of it. Uh, One one thing, one thing that um, one thing that I was very, very adamant about with Jason in particular was to make him a journalist and more importantly, to make him an out of work journalist, because in the UK, as is happening all around the world, local journalism is has never been more under threat. You know the whole industry as a whole is is under threat. Yeah. Journalism and good journalism and proper journalism, yes. and the financing of that and the the rigorous training of good journalists and nurturing the talent of journalism in younger generations. It's 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 never you know it's 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 been hard. it's been, it's been a hard ten years. It's been a, and I've seen it up close and personal. I've been lucky enough, very very lucky to to have been able to sustain a career throughout what has been a very very difficult time um and i was adamant to make jason an out-of-work journalist because in a very very small part the bingo hall detectives and jason as a character is my ode to local journalism um because i think local journalism in particular is so so important not just from an outward facing point of view from the industry to report on local matters and and to you know local journalism is, is is trusted so much more than national journalism right and and um, I mean, my experience working in local local papers back in the UK, you used to get people come to the offices with the story. Yeah. Now, that never happened to me when I worked for a national and it very, very rarely does. But that idea of the door always being open to the local community that reports on it uh, is still very much nurtured when and where possible. Um and it's not to say that the national approach is 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 wrong. It's not to say that the, the local approach is right. Far from it. It's it's just the, the nature of it. But from an inward looking perspective to the industry and the, the professional journalism, local papers are, are, are a breeding ground for talent. And when you first graduate from, from the college to go into a local paper, you will learn the ropes of what it means to be a journalist instantly. You know, a year on, on a local paper, you will get every piece of experience that you ever need to to be a great journalist yeah. and to not have that opportunity, uh, I think is, a, is a, is dangerous. It's, it's, it, I get it. I understand that it's about pounds and pence, dollars and cents. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a great shame. And I think having J- Jason who, um, who was perpetually a local journalist who never moved on to, to other opportunities, whereas his very, very good friend and his, his old college mate, uh, Laura uh, does. um. Yeah, I think I, I write what you know, right? That's that that's the that's the that's the old writing adage. And and I was I think I was able to I think I was able to add maybe a little bit of insight into it because I was a journalist and I'd been in both of their positions over the course of my career. Uh just to maybe add a little bit more realism. You know, it's it also helps that he's a journalist because it means that he knows about things like legality and what you can and can't do. And and when you've got cozy crime, because Traditionally, cosy crime will not involve a police officer as the central character. You kind of need you, you kind of need someone who roughly knows what they're doing to 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 keep things going. And journalism, you know, journalism in, in itself is is a, is a form of detection, I suppose. So yeah, the the both those characters again thoroughly enjoyed writing that scene uh, with them together um, because every journalist that I've ever met in my life whether I knew them beforehand or not we invariably end up ch- chatting about journalism <laughs> that's 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 what we do it's, it's this sort of global fraternity yeah. uh, and we all know the struggles and we all know the good points and we all know the bad points so it's it's nice to have it's nice to have that that internationally recognized camaraderie but yes in answer to your question uh, no it's it's not it's not me it's not me posing as two different characters. The, the, the pair of them are much better journalists than I ever was.
0: Well, okay. Now thinking about, I've kind of got two questions here. So thinking about journalism. And the reporter and I, I, I picked mm-hmm. up. Yeah, it's neat how you call them as a cub reporter. So that's
1: cub reporter. Yeah, yeah like
0: yeah. I, I take it that's the the newbie. Eh? Yeah, 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 greenhorn.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone, okay. someone fresh out of college or or just in the door on work experience or something like that. Yeah, a cub, okay. a cub reporter. Some people never stop being cub reporters, myself included. But that's again, that's a different issue. <laughs> okay, okay.
0: I'm wondering if the internet has. Killed the occupation of the reporter or the six PM news anchor. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of how the internet has ballooned, and I feel valid stories are competing with, I will say it, um, like loudmouth podcasters yeah, yeah, yeah. who cherry pick the facts and then present opinions instead of facts. Yeah, so. Yeah. Did I actually did I just ask you a question there or just did I give you my
1: point? Uh, in- no, no, I I I know what you're I know what you're on about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's th- there has never been a more dangerous time for the public when it comes to journalism in, in inverted commas. Yeah. Journalism is one of the very, very few professions that you don't technically need a, a formal qualification to be a journalist. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that you don't you're not held to the high, the very highest professional standards of what journalism is. So in the UK, you know, there's a there's an editor's code that has to be adhered to, and that covers things like privacy issues, contempt of court, you know, all the all, all the all the all the legal stuff, and all the stuff that that uh, the journalists and, and and newspapers and media outlets should be held accountable to. Now, unfortunately, that editor's code, particularly in the UK, isn't isn't as updated as often as it should be, and it means that. You know how do you how do you take a professional industry standards and apply that to someone who's broadcasting from their living room or their bedroom or their mum and dad's bedroom or their basement or something like that? You know, at what point does an amateur podcaster become a legitimate journalist and media outlet to the point where they have to be held accountable by the, the the professional standards? Now, the difference is. That's well. That's all well and good. Me saying that as a professional journalist who has twelve years of experience behind him, mostly online. It should be added mostly in online journalism. Um, but Joe Public doesn't know the difference between, you know, the the Jonathan Whitelaw Times and the the you know the Toronto Star.
0: Yeah,
1: and that that's that's the problem. And that that's that's when you get into that murky that murky world of fact-checking and people not checking their facts and 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 if you build up an audience based on what your output is and if that output is a load of rubbish and isn't fact-checked then you are in dangerous territory because you're influencing people under the guise of journalism but you're not being held to the same professional standards as a journalist would be if they work for cbc or ctv or, or or cnn or the sun or whatever you know um and i'd like to think or you do like to think that with the with Every media outlet, every professional media outlet, they are doing a vetting system when it comes to someone who's applying for a job. I know any job interview that I've been in or indeed any panel that I've been a part of, we will throw examples at the prospective candidates about content of court, about you know naming victims in, in court cases or, or or anything else. You know, basic, basic stuff of what professional journalists deal with on a day-to-day basis is bread and butter stuff and they should know these things off the, off the top of their head. Even simple things like in the u k, an example would be if there's a crime scene and you've got pictures of the crime scene might be something as simple as the police a police squad car with the tape and an officer standing guard. But if it's in say a cul-de-sac or it's at an apartment block, you can't have the number, the street number. you you as a media outlet can't broadcast that because you've got people that live there. you people that live next door to that, and they shouldn't be they shouldn't come under. They shouldn't come under the uh, come under the scrutiny of of an isolated incident that might have nothing to do with them. Same with things like registration plates,
0: yeah,
1: you know, um, license plates. You can't you can't broadcast these things on a platform where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, of millions of people are going to see. And um, but these are little things that you only know if you're a professional mm-hmm. journalist and you work professionally and you know the standards that have to be have to be kept. So. It's frightening. It's, it, it can be very, very frightening. Sometimes I see things that are online. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I see things that are that are from uh, professional uh, media outlets that make my teeth itch because yeah. they've just mm-hmm. not adhered to that professional standard. It could be a mistake. It, they might not. Know. It might be ignorance. It might just be time constraints. I don't know. It doesn't really matter mm-hmm. if the product isn't right, and that's that's what doesn't help journalism. Is when you have professional outlets who make mistakes that are so easily avoidable, or they just needed a little bit more time, or they needed double-checked or triple-checked. Thankfully, they are few and far between, but they do happen. Journalists yeah. are still human beings. Yeah. Uh, as, as as in any profession, uh the, the the difference is that they control quite a bit of power when it comes to notoriety or infamy or indeed fame, you know, not just not just the bad things, the good things too, and and yeah, it happens. It really, really does happen. And again, I could tell you, I could tell you stories that would keep you up at night because they keep me up at night. But that's a that's for another podcast, I think. Yeah,
0: or another book. <laughs> right.
1: Or another book, quite <laughs> absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. This is the third book. Yeah. You have a fourth one coming out in September. I do. And I was wondering, have you noticed your writing has changed since that first book you've written?
1: I, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I, I've said this before. I think the bingo hall detectives is the best thing I've ever written. Oh, wow. Bar none. Mm-hmm. Eh, bar none. I am immensely proud of it. I'm immensely proud of all my work. Eh, mm-hmm. Of course I am. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I've always felt that the bingo hall detectives in particular is, 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 is it's, it's, it's the one that I'm probably most proud of okay. Um, because I think that it just all, it all really came together, and actually, writing the new one, I'm, I, I sent my, I got my edits back from my editor uh, on the twenty third of December, yeah. and I spent the, the Christmas holidays uh, editing, and it's back with with my editor. In fact, I have an editorial meeting this week about it, and uh, I, I've never felt more pressure to write this this next book in the in the Bingo Hall Detective series. Um, and it's come from different it's come from different angles. Like oh. a lot of it is me. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, how do you you write the best thing that you've ever written? Yeah. But you've got to go and do it again <laughs> next year. You've got to do it bigger and better, and all, all, all the rest of it. Uh, and I, I felt a lot of pressure as well, just to repay the faith of of, of Harper Collins and Harper North and the whole editorial team who have been completely behind me from from day one. Um, I've never. I've, this this is my first. These are my first books with a with a with one of the big five uh, yeah. publishers, and it's it's a, it's a real privilege. I yeah. always say this. I mean, th- th- this is the thing, right? That th- you know, I say, oh, it's a terrible pressure, and, and and all the rest of it. It's a great problem to have. You know, I'm not. It's there's a lot more people out there who've got real proper pressure that 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 depends on you know can put food in their table and things like that. That's that. Those are real pressures. What I'm doing isn't. It's not. It's not a pressure. It's it's. It's a lovely problem to have, um, but yeah, it's out. It's out in May in the UK, and it's out. I think the end of August, start September here in Canada, and uh, and I've just signed a, a deal for another two in the series. So I'm I'm delighted. I'm absolutely delighted. So that'll take me up to 2025, 20, I believe. Um, the dates pending, titles pending, but yeah, it's um, my style's different. I, I think. Um, yeah I think I think my approach to the writing is different as well I think I'm more I think I'm more confident as a writer I think, I think I'm more confident in myself as a writer now than I was when when you know way back when when my first book came out but that's that's just experience right that's that's the, it's the same as you know the first shift that I did as a journalist was yeah. was nothing like what my last one was so it, it, it's the more you do something the, the more you dedicate yourself to a craft the better hopefully hopefully yeah. the better you become so yeah, my I think my approach to it's different. I think I'm a lot more confident in my own ability, um, and I'm also more confident to make mistakes. Okay. I think that's that's the, probably the biggest difference. I think when I used to, particularly before I was published, I used to sit down and write and think, you know, this is a this is a a, a, a gift that you're being given, Jonathan, to join the echelons of Hemingway and. You know, Shakespeare and all these, you know, that's unsustainable. You can't do that. You can't yeah. sit down and write and believe that you've got to live up to all these, you know, these genuine geniuses, these the yeah. these definers of genres and all the rest of it. You can't do that. It's, it's impractical. And I think um the confidence that I've got now in myself, knowing that I don't have to live up to those expectations, those weighty expectations of myself means that uh means that I'm enjoying it. I'm certainly enjoying it a lot more. Yeah. Good. Good, good. Did I answer that question? Can yes, I feel you like did. I, yes, I felt that like I went round and round and round and then ended up back at the start and hadn't, yeah, hadn't no, answered.
0: You did. You answered it,
1: yeah. Thank, so, thank God.
0: <laughs> we're going to lighten it up a bit. I have a few just light questions, just wrapping it up here. Is there something in Scotland you wish we had in Canada or
1: what is the biggest difference between the two countries? That's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Do you know? I've not. Uh, I've. Th- there's nothing that I can't. I can't say this without sounding really horrible. But there's nothing that I've since we have came over here that I went. Oh gosh. Do you know? I really really miss that. I think that there's a sh- there's a shop in the UK, uh, Marks and Spencers that I that I kind of miss. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just a supermarket. It's just, it's it's just a it's just a super a supermarket, and they do lovely pies and and cakes and things like that. Um, but I shouldn't be stuffing my face with pies and cakes. That's <laughs> that's unsustainable, right? Uh, so I can li- I can live without I can live without that. Yeah. Um, biggest difference is the weather okay. uh, in terms of the temperatures. Like where where we are in Alberta, obviously we had two weeks before Christmas. We had minus forty uh, oh, with, yeah. a, with a with a wind chill of minus fifty. But weirdly, and I've said this to everyone. I've said this to everyone. I don't think anyone believes me. Back in the UK, yeah. um, I haven't felt cold. You know, I think it's, I think at time of recording, I think it's about minus, in fact, I'll tell you right now what it is. It's currently minus 11. Uh, so there's a low of minus 14. Mm-hmm. Now, before I came over to the UK, I think, uh, came over to Canada from the UK rather, I think the lowest temperature that I'd ever experienced was maybe minus five. And that was for one day and then it, and it vanished. Yeah. Um, whereas we've had snow on the ground here since just before, or just after Halloween. It's minus 11 just now with a with a, a with a a, a a low of minus 16. We had minus 40 two yeah. weeks before Christmas, but that was the first time I actually felt cold.
0: Um, so you're good to minus minus 40 okay <laughs> i'm fine i'm
1: fine at minus 40 that's the lowest i've ever gone i'm with a wind chill minus 50 that i'm okay there and then i start to feel cold it's a very different atmosphere though right it's it's different here in, in the prairies it's it's a uh, it's a very dry cold so you can i think you can get away with it whereas i think where you are joanna it's it's a lot more similar to what it's like in the uk a very very damp uh, yeah. atmosphere so you feel it differently
0: yeah
1: um so it's uh, you know it's an experience it's yeah. It's, uh, it's an experience. We've got snow tires on the car. We've got, um, we're, we're layered up, you know, and life goes on. That's the thing. Back in the UK, you know, a, a single snowflake falls and the whole transport network is, is goosed. That's us. Yeah. I, and and I must admit, I, w- I was speaking to some friends uh, that work at CBC a co- just before Christmas when I saw all the bad weather in, in, in Vancouver uh, and BC in general, and I did feel a little bit smug. I'll be honest with you. I did. I felt a little bit smug as I, as I, you know, as I jumped into my car and put with the snow tires and the four wheel drive and things like that. And my layers thinking, you know, those, those those they don't know what weather is. We yeah. don't know where there is. And I wind my I wind my parents up about that back in the UK. Yeah. You know, they're moaning about it being two degrees and raining and damp. And I go, it's minus, it's minus 11 here. So mm-hmm. I had a couple of friends at CBC. They said to me, oh, we're very proud of you, Jonathan. That's you. You've become a proper Albertan now when you start <laughs> rubbing it in the faces of others about the bad weather.
0: <laughs> yes. See, because I have a, my sister, my oldest sister lives in Calgary.
1: Right. And
0: I remember once, like, it's it's minus five today here. So yeah. I, I, had the, the the heavier coat. I had, yeah. I had the gloves, and I'm taking the dogs out for the walk. They have their coats on, and I'm thinking, geez, okay, just keep walking, keep walking, and it won't <laughs> be cold, right? You know, and I, I've said to Susan, you know, it's it's minus five, and yeah. she'll say to me, balmy compared to Calgary,
1: Alberta. So, that's that's what that's the word I use. That's the word I use all the time. We were up at minus two, I think, uh, yesterday or the day before, and I said it's positively tropical here. <laughs> the thing is, right, it's still cold. Like, we all acknowledge that it's still cold because it's yeah. minus, you know, whatever. As I always say, particularly in Glasgow and the west coast of Scotland, you know, you can have the same weather on Christmas Day as you do on the 1st of July. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of wall-to-wall grey. There's a wonderful Scottish word called, uh, it's called drich, dreich, D-R-E-I-C-H. Mm-hmm. And I think, I genuinely think it's the best word that you can ever describe the weather in Scotland or indeed the UK as a whole. Outside of that sort of, you know, uh, south, south-east, the London, the London hub. Um, and it's used to describe wall-to-wall grey gray skies with maybe a light drizzle, uh, maybe slightly heavier, not a, not a torrential downpour, a slight chill to the wind, but not enough that you would need a scarf and coat, You're know, just enough to make you really, really uncomfortable and wishing that you were inside or indeed on a beach in the Maldives. Okay. Uh, so dreek, dreek weather, Dreek weather, it's one, it's one of my favourites.
0: Okay. Now... Jonathan, I just about called you Jason.
1: <laughs> close, 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 almost there, almost there. No, you're doing very well. You're doing okay. very well.
0: Oh, and it's my favorite question. So instead of the elderly man bumping it into Jason Brazil in the pub, you bump into Jason at the local pub. Yep. What would he say to you and what would be your response?
1: I think knowing Jason... Uh, it would probably be it's your round, um, given that he's he's always notoriously skint uh, and, and without broke, you know, without any money. Uh, and of course, I would say yes, of course. What you're having and knowing him, he'd order something really expensive that he probably doesn't even like because that's the that's the type of guy he is. Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, we've kind of touched on it, haven't we? Like when journalists get together, whether they know each other for a hundred years or they've never met each other before, invariably we talk about journalism, and we'll start swapping war stories about being sent out in the pouring rain without an umbrella to cover some horrible, horrible story, or indeed, that's the great thing about journalism, right, is that, particularly digital journalism that I worked on, you can be working on something really, really horrible, really nasty, the very, very worst of humanity, and then when you finish that and it's published, you end up doing something completely frivolous, complete, the total opposite, whether it's, uh, I don't know, a cloud that looks like... A, a cloud that looks like Scotland without <laughs> without the rest of the UK attached to it, and you're you know, and this happened. Don't get me wrong, this this genuinely happened. I would do stories like that, you know, immediately after doing some horrible court case about a you know a serial killer. Oh wow.
0: um,
1: And then once the the cloud story's finished, you go and do something about a uh, uh, about. You know, for example, uh, an amateur soccer game that had to be stopped midway through because the referee found that there was a dog turd in the middle of the pitch. That happened as well. And then you do that story, and then the next story you do is some horrible car crash that's that's a, that's a fatality. You know, and it's, this all happens can happen within the space of an hour and a half, ninety minutes, sometimes less. Yeah. um that's the thing that's the great thing about digital journalism is that because it's so instant you're doing these things boom 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 boom. back 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 and there's a degree of there's a degree of uh, you have to have a degree of 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 um of automation to it i think you know you've still got to do it to the high standards but you can't linger on it for very long good or bad uh because the next thing needs to be done there's always something that needs to be done so invariably you we i think we would probably swap stories because he he's done a lot of a uh, cute dog competitions and things like that as a, as a staple of the local journalistic uh, way of life is local, local dog stories, local giant vegetable stories. They're a are a, a classic one to do.
0: Okay. So last question. You've gone to Tim Hortons yep, and you have your roll up to the rim cup. I do. And you've won the chance to interview Connor McDavid or Wayne Gretzky. Who would you
1: pick? I this think. is the, the I, I, I we were chatting. I, I emailed you, Joanna, earlier on. This is the hardest question, honestly, it is. So the weird thing is, right, I grew up, I, I grew up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing something right if you flummox the journalist, believe me. Um, this is so hard, right? This is yeah. really hard because obviously Connor McDavid, I have never seen anyone skate like Connor McDavid in my life. And, and this is someone who was a who's a relatively casual fan of the NHL before before we came over. Uh, go Oilers, by the way. That I, I that goes that goes without saying. Yeah. Um but some of the things that I've seen, particularly this season and the tail end of last season in the playoffs, since we've been here, because that's the thing, right? If you yeah. watch the NHL in, in in the UK, there were only certain games that they would show. Whereas I I've watched every game this season of the Oilers. And I don't have to get up at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning to watch it. I can sit and watch it two in the afternoon on a Saturday or eight o'clock at night, you know. Yeah. I'm bereft that at the time of recording it's the All-Star weekend and I don't have another game for ten days because they were they were so good against Chicago. Anyway, but um, <laughs> I mean economic David is is genuinely one of those one of those rare, rare talents in sport that you are just grateful. That you have that you've happened to be born at the same time to see this guy in action in his prime now conversely
0: yeah
1: uh, Wayne Gretzky is 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 up there with you know in the pantheon of uh, your Michael Jordans and your Derek jeters and your Cristiano Ronaldo's and your Diego Maradonas and, and the, the list is endless of people who genuinely were nobody was better at yeah. going out and doing their job in the history of the Earth than these guys right yeah. And I grew up in the '90s, so I um I was born in '86, so I was right in the middle of the of the 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 great uh, Oilers dynasty, and Gretzky obviously goes to LA and then laterally New York, and I remember I remember, and I gave a I, I actually did an interview for CTV not long after I I arrived, I I went viral with the, with the Oilers fans, a uh, forty hours after I arrived in Canada. Because as a as a as a bit of context, it was the I think it was game three. Uh, it was either game three or game four of the 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 Stanley Cup playoffs battle of Alberta.
0: Oh, geez.
1: Um, where our apartment was 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 a two minute walk around the corner from Rogers Place. So, I got my wife and I uh, Oilers jerseys for Christmas before we came over. So we donned it. Um, we donned those and took Henry, our son, round the uh, round for a walk ahead of this game. And the place was awash with all those fans, and they were very, very welcoming. So I got my picture taken with Rogers' place behind us, jersey on, and stuff like that. And I happened to mention in Twitter that you know it had been five thousand miles, and what a time to arrive in the middle of the Battle of Alberta. And this tweet went viral, thousands yeah. and thousands and thousands of likes and retweets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up doing an interview on C. I did I did an interview for CBC Morning Show in Edmonton about. Being an Oilers fan, five thousand traveling five thousand miles for the game, and now living here, obviously, yeah. and then I did one for CTV, and I was asked about you know it, it, it had it had the the Wayne Gretzky, we had the Wayne Gretzky statue behind me when I was when I was chatting. Yeah. I told this story about how I grew up in the nineties, and there's an advert I used to play the N64 Nintendo and things like that, and I always remember this, always remember this advert. And I've never been able to find it, actually. I've looked for it a couple of times, but this advert was a full-page advert in, I think, Nintendo Magazine.
0: Yeah.
1: And it had the great one on the left, and it had the digital version of him on the right, and it was an advert for his game or NHL 96 or whatever it was that that was out at the time, and it said that the tagline for it was, what's the one thing that the great one fears most? And then dot, 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 himself. And and I thought that was that I thought what 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 stroke of marketing genius and it stuck with me all, all these years and obviously you know from what from what I got to see of 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 Gretzky when he was when he was playing, it's a tough one. Can I not interview both of them?
0: <laughs> you did not give me an answer. <laughs> is, that an, is
1: that an option? Do you know what? Do you know what I will do? Right, I do, I'm gonna I'm this is a very sneaky this is a very sneaky journalistic answer. I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna vote for I'm gonna go for Gretzky. Yeah, because he's the great one. In the hopes that I will get another opportunity to interview McDavid throughout the rest of his career, if not when he retires. There we oh, go. That's that. That's sneaky go. as sneaky as you can get. That's that's your journalistic mentality for you. Never satisfied. <laughs> oh,
0: that's great. That's great. Well, Jonathan, thank you. This has been a
1: thank blast. you. A blast.
0: Hey,
1: not at all. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's a wonderful show, and I'm just genuinely genuinely privileged to be a part of. it.
0: Thank you. Okay, well, hopefully it's not minus five out there anymore. <laughs> Happy writing. Bye-bye. Okay, we'll see ya.
1: Bye-bye.